All right, this is the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and I've entitled the message Thanksgiving and Praise, uh, Psalm 145. It seems like every year we come around to Thanksgiving, I always kind of look back on the year and think, am I more thankful this year than I was last year? And I hate to admit it, but I think it's a process that's very slow in my life. I don't know about you, but it seems to be very slow that we really grow in a spirit of thanksgiving, a genuine attitude of thanksgiving every day of the year. And so my heart has been challenged as I've looked through Psalm 145 to be reminded of the challenge to be thankful every day of the year. And so I trust your heart will be touched as well. All of us like to be associated with greatness. Uh, a number of years ago, I went to the Henry Ford Museum in Detroit, Michigan. Right next to that, there's a place called Greenfield Village. If you've been there, uh, it is a place where there's a lot of famous names, great people, people who invented things. Uh, Thomas Edison, many of his inventions, the phonograph and many other inventions that he invented are housed in the Henry Ford Museum. They also have the car that Lincoln was assassinated, or I mean the car that uh, Kennedy was assassinated in, and the chair from Ford Theater that Lincoln was assassinated in. One of the most interesting uh, articles that I saw was when I came over to a little display case it was a little glass case, and it had a little uh, glass test tube in it with a cork in the end of it. And down at the bottom, it had a little card, and it said, Thomas Edison's last breath. I thought, wow, if I ever get sick and my wife holds a test tube up to my mouth, I'm going to be a little concerned. Uh, Thomas Edison's last breath. I'm not sure anybody would want it, but... It's kind of hard to believe that he's gasping for breath and somebody's holding a test. Anyhow, I don't think it was a joke. It was supposedly real. But anyhow, it was a neat place. But the idea is we like to talk about and associate ourselves with great people, don't we? Uh, a number of years ago, my brother was going through an airport. And as he was walking through the airport, he saw Michael Jordan. Anybody know who Michael Jordan is? Yeah, a few of us do. And as he's walking down, he sees Michael Jordan coming toward him, and he said he intentionally just kind of leaned over so he could brush up against Michael Jordan so he could say, I touched Michael Jordan. He hasn't taken a bath since. No. <laughs> but to brush up against greatness, there's something in all of us that wants to be associated with greatness. Is that not true? It is. We all say, oh, I met so-and-so, or I was in the same room with so-and-so. Or you look on the internet and you see some of the prices that Elvis Presley stuff sells for. Oh, he was a great man, you know, and people want greatness. They want to be attached to greatness. And so in this psalm, we are going to brush up against the greatness of God. We're going to be reminded of the awesome God that we serve. And the first quality we brush up against is found in the opening verses of Psalm 145. And that is this, thanksgiving and praise for God's greatness. God is great because of who he is. 
Now, we, we say that and we say, oh, yeah, well, of course we know that. But let's review for a moment. Just in this chapter alone, it talks about who God is. And in verse 1, it says that God is king. Notice he says, I will exalt you, my God, the king. I will praise your name forever. Down in verse 3, it says that God is great. He is beyond normal. <laughs> he is supernatural. He is great. We cannot put words in the human language that really attach itself to the greatness of God. Then it says he is majestic in verse 5. It talks about his majesty. In verse 6, it talks about God is good. Good. And then it talks about in verse 7 that God is righteous. So let's go back here. God is king. What does that mean? It means he fills the function of a ruler. A ruler is one who has authority, who is in charge, who takes care of the government of the universe. That's God. He is the governor of the universe. He governs it all. He holds the world together, the Bible tells us in the book of Colossians. Everything is held together. The laws of gravity, the laws of nature, our atmosphere so we can breathe is all held together by this great God who is king, who is great, who is majestic, who is good, who is righteous. He is the commander-in-chief of the universe. He is also the head of the church. This is the God that we worship and serve. And this is the one that we should be giving praise and thanksgiving to. So when we come into church, we're not coming in to say, Oh, God, just bless me. No, God, how can we bless you? How can we give you the praise, the worship, the adoration, the glory that deserve, you rightfully deserve? Because you are the ruler of the universe. When I look out and I see the stars and they're just held in space by the invisible hand of God. And how many stars are there? Millions and millions. And astronomers keep finding more and more galaxies with a more powerful telescope to say, the universe is bigger than we imagined. And if the universe is that big, how big is the God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand who is worthy of our praise? It tells us in Isaiah 9, 6, the government will be upon his shoulders. Talking about Jesus. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He is the, let me attach this now, the eternal God, the eternal King, eternally great, eternally majestic, eternally good, and eternally righteous. Now, the words... Thank and think come from the same root, reminding us that thanksgiving comes from thinking about our blessings. And I think we have to begin to think about the God who gives the blessing. Every good and perfect gift, the Bible says, comes from above. And we have to start with God. Imagine what the universe would be like if God was not in control. I mean, look what it's like when he is in control and the sin that runs rampant. But what if he was not in control at all? We would destroy ourselves. We would be gone in an instant. 
We would have no atmosphere to breathe. Our bodies would shut down. God gives me every breath, every heartbeat, every blinking eye, every air-filled lung comes from the Lord. So thanksgiving and praise for God's greatness happens when I extol God as king. When I extol him as king, he says in verse 1, I exalt you, my God, the king, and I will do what? I will praise your name forever and ever. What this means is that we are to bless God verbally. To verbally tell him how great he is, how good he is, how righteous he is, how holy he is. God, I exalt you. I praise you for who you are. Let me ask you a question. How many times did you swallow this week? I have no idea how many times I swallowed, but I know it was a lot. And many of them was with food and taste buds to enjoy the gifts of God. Probably too many bites of food, but let's not go there. He says in Psalm 63, 3, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Is that what we use our lips for, to glorify the Lord, to bless the Lord verbally? Dr. Alexander White of Edinburgh, Scotland, was, a, was famous for his pulpit prayers. He always found something to thank God for, even in bad times. One stormy morning, a member of his congregation thought to himself, the preacher will have nothing to thank God for on a wretched morning like this. But White began his prayer. We thank thee, O God, that it is not always like this. <laughs> There's always something to thank God for. In Psalm 63, 7, he says, the psalmist says, Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. Another way we verbally bless the Lord is with music. In song, we just burst forth into praise because we think about the greatness of God and we can't seem to captivate it just with words, but with music. And we bless the Lord. It also carries the idea of bending the knee when we extol God as king and praise him, we bend the knee in humility. We're, we're marveled at the greatness of God. And we see this in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Remember Daniel, there was a document signed that no one was to pray to any other God. The king had that signed that he could not pray to anybody else but his God. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where his windows in his upper chamber opened toward Jerusalem. It says he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I find this interesting because Daniel's life could have been in danger. He could have been threatened to lose his life, but he wasn't thinking about his life. He was thinking, I have to praise God. I have to thank God for who he is and the testimony that that rang of being on his knees in prayer. In Psalm 95, 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. It is to celebrate, to bless, to adore God. We sing the little song at Christmas time, O come, let us adore him. 
Oh, come, let us adore him. I would like us to sing that right now. As we think about the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the kingship of God, the authority of God, the government of God, we need to come and adore him for who he is. And I just want you just close your eyes and just raise your voice and say, Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Cry the Lord. We give you all the glory. We give you all the glory we give you all the glory we give you all the glory Christ the God's people said, Amen. He's worthy of the glory in our adoration. The psalmist goes on. We made it to verse 2. How are we going to get through 21? By the way, this psalm is an acrostic, which means that they took the Hebrew alphabet and every verse starts with a letter. The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is in verse 1. The second letter of the Hebrew alphabet is in verse 2 and all the way through. There's 22 letters, and you say there's only 21 verses. Well, some text would insert the one letter that was missing. But it's an acrostic. And oftentimes they were written that way to help them memorize and remember the Scripture. But in verse 2, the psalmist says, Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. When we talk about God's name, we're talking about his reputation, his fame. It derives from an Arabic root, which means to mark or brand. So there is an external mark to distinguish one thing or person from another. God definitely has a distinguishing mark to him. His name is above all names. His glory is above all glories. He says, every day I praise you and extol your name forever and ever. It means through my lifetime. And it also means not just on the Sabbath day when Jews would gather to worship the Lord. He says, I'm going to praise you when it's not the Sabbath day. That's how great you are. I'm going to praise you on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. I'm going to praise you every day of the week. As his heart bursts forth into praise. I, here's how we extol God. I extol God as king when I surrender to his lordship. You know, there are so many people who say, oh, yes, I'm going to praise God on Sunday, but then they live like a cursing sailor on Monday. They live like the devil on Tuesday. That is not extolling the Lord. Extolling the Lord says, God, I want you to be in control of my life. I want you to be on the throne of my life. I want you to do with me as you will for your honor, for your purpose, for your glory. I surrender to your lordship. 
even if it means from moving from, from Virginia to South Dakota. Yes, I surrender to your lordship. I bow before you, your authority. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to argue with you. God, you are sovereign. You are in control. You bring things into my life to humble me. There have been things that God has brought into my life that have hurt me. But that hurt has humbled me. I hope. I hope it continues to humble me. And say, God, you're the one in control. You're the one who writes my script. I don't write my script. You write it. I want to surrender to your lordship. That's what true extolling God as king is all about. And that's where the psalmist was. God, you are God and I am not. This word extol, we don't use it very often. It means praise, but it also means to bring to a position of honor. God, I want to bring you to a position of honor in my life by submitting and surrendering to your lordship. I want to bring you, I want to lift you high. I want to raise you high. I want to promote your position, your power, and your glory in my life. The ten spies that went into the land of Canaan to search it out. This whole idea here is, is the idea of greatness. And they were scared because of the size of the people and the size of the cities. And they were overwhelmed. God does not want us to be intimidated by his greatness. He wants us to be humbled. He does not want us to cower in fear when we come into his presence, but rather approach him with reverence and great respect for who he is. When we exercise great reverence and respect for God, listen carefully, my behavior will be different. I will not treat him like a run-of-the-mill God. I won't treat him like a genie in my prayers or some vending machine. God, I'm going to put in my two quarters of prayers. Give me my answer. No. I'm surrendering to your lordship. You're in control. You are the ones that call the shots. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you were overwhelmed by the greatness of God. Overwhelmed. I ask myself that same question. Isaiah the prophet said, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high, lifted up, and shall be exalted. We offer thanksgiving and praise for his holiness. In Psalm 99.5, it says, Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. In Psalm 99, verse 9, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. You know what's amazing? That he is so holy and different than us and separate from us, and yet he invites us to be close to him. You know, there are some people who are great. You can't get close to them. They have layers of people, and you will never get to that person. But God, we go straight into the veil and the temple was rent too. We have access into the Holy of Holies. We have access into the presence of God. That's mind-boggling to me. And he pays attention to what I have to say, my gripes, my complaints. 
and he listens. He goes on to say in verse 3, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One theologian said, if you look at the surge of the ocean, or the glory of the mountains, or the splendor of the sky on a cloudless night, and you are not moved to praise God, you are to be more pitied than a person who has lost his physical sight. As an evangelist said to some inmates in a federal prison on one occasion, if that don't turn you on, you ain't got no switches. And I think it's true. His greatness no one can fathom. What does it mean when it talks about fathom? To measure the depth of something. To understand completely. To get to the bottom of something. Lake Tahoe is the eighth deepest lake in the world. Two men in 1875 discovered the deepest point in the lake to be 1,645 feet deep. They lowered a weighted champagne bottle on fishing line from the side of their boat. It has been said that Lake Tahoe could provide every person in the United States with 50 gallons of water per day for five years. We could never personally exhaust the resources of Lake Tahoe nor can we exhaust the resources of Almighty God. As we investigate the person of God, we will not figure him out. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. The mind and heart of God is hidden from us. It is not possible for us to fathom the depth of the God we worship. He is so great. And I know doctors like Dr. Lowen and others who study the human body. They continually, I'm sure, discover things. It's amazing, the body and the complexity and how it heals itself and recovers. And yet God made it all. He made it all. God is great, not only because of who he is, but because of what he does. It tells us, look down in verse 4. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. So here we see God's works and his acts. We also see in verse 5 his wonderful works. He tells us in Psalm 139, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. He tells us in verse 6, he calls your works awesome works. In verse 6 again, he says, your great deeds. <laughs> Look what he does. They try to use all these adjectives to describe the magnitude of God. His accomplishments, his achievements, his activities. Well, let's move on to the second one. We'll have to do these quicker. Thanksgiving and praise to God for God's graciousness in verses 8 to 13. His graciousness. The fact that God is gracious, it means to show favor. 
But look what else it says, when it is neither expected nor deserved. We should not expect it, nor do we deserve it. He's just gracious. That's who he is. Just as we brushed up against the greatness of God in the opening verses, now we brush up against his graciousness. Look in verse 8. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's patient. He's rich in love. He's good. He's compassionate. These qualities tell us of God's royal character and his royal power. If we look down in verse 11, it says, They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. This is, again, the royal power of God. His royalty is over all royalty. His kingdom is over all kingdoms. It's a reflection. This section is a reflection of when God passed before Moses, when Moses wanted to see the glory of God, and God says, I can't show you all my glory. I'd I'd kill you. But he did pass in front of Moses, and he says, and here's what Moses said when God passed in front of him in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And how did Moses respond to this once-in-a-lifetime experience? A couple verses later, It says he bowed to the ground and he worshiped. What other response could there be? He was humbled at the magnitude of his glory. And so should we be as well. We see God's favor poured out toward Israel when they were in slavery And he delivered them. Their slavery was discouraging and difficult. They saw no way out. They were totally captivated by the enemy. They were dominated and controlled by the enemy. And they were forced to do whatever the enemy wanted. And God graciously, miraculously raised up a leader in Moses and said, we're going out. And not only that, oh, we come into the Red Sea. Now we're in trouble. No, I'll just part the Red Sea. I'm going to take care of you. Let me ask you, what are you going through that's so difficult, hard, discouraging, that you don't think God can handle, you and God together? Maybe it's an opportunity for you to fall on your face before the greatness of God and say, God, I can't do this, but I know you can. I know you'll help me because you're a great God, and you are a gracious God. The depth of God's love is shown in an illustration in Isaiah 49, 15. Listen to this. He says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? He's saying that's unthinkable, that a mother would possibly forget the baby at her breast or have no love for the child she gave birth to. But here's what he says after this. Though she may forget... I will not forget you. 
because you are engraved in the palms of my hand. I will not forget you. That's the love and grace of God. You know, in spite of all the rebellion and disobedience of Israel, God still loved them. Like the prodigal son who went out and he squandered his living and he scorned his father's love. He's coming home and his father's looking like, yeah, here you come. It's about time. You despicable, no good piece of trash. No, that's not what he said. He said, welcome home. Welcome home. I've been waiting for you. That's the grace of God. Did he deserve it? No. He lived like a fool. And yet it shows the grace of God in receiving us. And so many times people say, well, you know, you don't know how badly I've blown it. It doesn't matter how badly you've blown it. God knows and he still loves you. That's what's amazing. He still loves us. You know, every other religion, to gain the favor of God, you have to work for it. Let me give an example. In Buddhism, there's an eightfold path to gain the favor of God. The Hindus have a doctrine of karma. Oh, you're going to get better and better, and little by little, you're going to earn favor. The Muslims have a code of law. Each of these are necessary to perform to earn the approval of God. Only in Christianity is God's love unconditional. He grants it on, based on the merits of his grace and not what we deserve. He does not treat us, the Bible says, as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. This thanksgiving, we can be grateful for all God has given to us, his love, his grace, his forgiveness, our families, our health, our church, our homes, our possessions. But we can be equally grateful for what he has not given us. He has not given us the punishment that our sins deserve. You see, his grace gives us what we don't deserve. His mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. We have a gracious ruler who longs to give good gifts to his children. His hand is open all the time for his children. If you look down in verse 16, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. He's saying, I'm a generous God. I want to pour out blessing after blessing after blessing on your life. Let's move on. I'm going to cover one more. Thanksgiving and praise to God for his faithfulness. It's found in the last section. One theologian called this section God the provider. Four ways God provides for his people. We'll have to do these quickly. Number one, he provides strength to the weak. When you are weak in temptation, when you are weak in overcoming a habit, or a struggle, God gives you strength you don't possess. That's why we have to ask him. You're facing discouragement. 
God can encourage you. You may feel overwhelmed. God will say, I'm here to help carry your load. Would you give me part of the load? (laughs) I want to help you. He wants to be our burden bearer. Secondly, he provides food for the hungry. Food for the hungry. By the way, if you look in verse 14, this is where you see strength to the weak. The Lord upholds all those who fall. He helps the discouraged. I've fallen and I can't get up. You've heard that? The Lord, and lifts up all who are bowed down. That's strength to the weak. Then in 15, the eyes of all who look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. He provides food for the hungry just when they need it. He supplies, and he supplies generously. Thirdly, we see in verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He provides answers to prayer. He's near. The Bible says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And fourthly, he provides protection for his children. Look in verse 20. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. There is no enemy that God can't wipe out. You see, in the Old Testament, he he slew with an angel 185,000 people. (laughs) If God be for us, who can be against us? The faithfulness of God is evident because he keeps his promises. He provides for and he protects his children. When we fall, he lifts us up. When we're discouraged, he encourages us. When we are hungry, he satisfies our hunger. When we need an answer to prayer, he supplies it. And when we feel threatened, God protects us. Isn't that kind of all-inclusive, God? The story is told of an ancient kingdom whose king had just died. And his former ambassadors were sent to choose a successor. They had to make a choice between two infants. They found the little fellows fast asleep. And looking at them carefully, they agreed it was very difficult to decide. That is, until they noticed a curious little difference between them. As they lay there, one infant had his tiny fist closed tight, but the other slept with his little hands wide open. Instantly, they made their selection of the latter. And sure enough, the story very properly concludes with the record that as he grew up in his high position, he became, came to be known as the king with the open hand. <laughs> That's God. Open-handed. God is faithful to all. Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. God is faithful to all, so all should thank and praise him. If you look in this last section quickly, what you'll see is a little word, a three-letter word called all. It's used 11 times. Look in verse 13. All his promises. Loving toward all 
he has made. Verse 14, he upholds all those who fall. He lifts up all who are bowed down. You are not outside the realm of God. Verse 15, all who look to you. Verse 17, righteous in all his ways. Loving toward all he has made. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him. You say, well, he's not going to be close to me. Yes, he is. You're part of the all. Verse 20, the Lord watches over all who love him and all the wicked he will destroy. And then he gives the climax in verse 21. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying, I want the legacy of my life to be one of thanksgiving and praise to God. And he offers thanksgiving and praise to God for his greatness, his graciousness, his faithfulness. What will your legacy be? Will your life be a legacy of thanksgiving and praise to God? Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I hope and pray that your heart has been stirred and maybe prepped for thanksgiving, to be reminded of how great this God is, this King who is great, who is majestic, who is good, who is right, who is eternal. We are all guilty of griping and complaining. And that's probably something we'll all struggle with while we're in the flesh. <laughs> but God, help us to bless verbally the Lord, to bend our knee to his greatness, to be reminded. I would encourage you to read through this psalm maybe this week. Maybe read it on Thanksgiving Day with your family and say, you know what? We have so much to be thankful for. And begin to say, you know what? We need to be thanking God every day and make that part of your devotional time that I am going to thank God for something every day. And that's a challenge to my own heart as well. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, the spirit of thanksgiving begins by inviting the author of thanksgiving in your life. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin, your brokenness. He shed his blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins. His shed blood satisfied the wrath and holiness of God so that we could be forgiven. He was the sacrifice for sin. And if you will say, God, I'm a sinner, but I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for my sin, I receive you into my life to make you my Savior and my Lord. I would invite you to pray that prayer right where you're seated. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe you will be renewed in your commitment to be 
a person who is constantly blessing and thanking God for who he is and what he does. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.